members. Uh, this is our fourth successful meetup. Um, I see a lot of new faces, so just to catch you up, um, the reason why we've actually started these meetup meetups was to actually bring a whole lot of like-minded people into the same room to discuss healthcare in South Africa and how we could use the technology surrounding us to solve healthcare issues. Um, just a little bit about ourselves. We are a health tech company. Uh, we provide clinical information through our digital platform, so the app or the website, and for, for medical professionals. Um, and that's it. We have snacks over there if anyone's interested. And the bathroom, if you go out through the turnstiles, go straight into your lift. <laughs> and that's about it. So we have our guest speakers, Dr. Farai Nikosa, who will be speaking to us about um, creating how to create an open discussion about healthcare through media products. Um, so first of all, thank you to everyone at EM Guidance for all the support that they've given us so far and for inviting us to speak tonight. We are really appreciative of that. Thank you to everyone for coming and we hope that we can give you an informative discussion and we have something to talk about tomorrow, hopefully for some time to come. As has been said, my name is Brian, Dr. Chukmanzi, and this is Amefosa, uh, Dr. Honda. And we currently run our own podcast called 15 Minute Medicine, where we try to make medicine as simple as possible, but not simpler than that. So I'm just gonna start off with a few things I've noticed or things that have happened in the past few years that I find quite interesting. So I have one friend who actually used to be part of 15 Minute Medicine. Um, he left, not, there wasn't any squabbles or anything, but just life got in the way, so he left us. But about five years ago, he had the idea of creating an app that kind of like Uber uses the same sort of platform and structure, but instead of using it for an in-driving service, but he rather wanted to use help, um, make use of helpers. He thought about it for a very long time, and I don't know, he just didn't have that push to keep going with this idea. I think it was about three years ago, now we have TubeSouth, I don't know if anyone's heard of it, the exact idea that he had. I think that's quite frustrating when you realize that the idea that you had was actually quite good, but you didn't follow through with it. Um, I also recently, yesterday I watched, have you guys seen on Netflix, there's um, Bill Gates has a documentary, really interesting. If you ever have time, you should watch it. And I also, I, over the past few years, I, I looked at a problem that happens in a lot of lower and middle income countries. And that problem is specifically to do with poo. When you look at poo, a cow, <laughs> yes, poo. <laughs> when you look at cows, their poo is quite valued. We use that as manure. If I was to bring my dad here, he'd be like ecstatic talking about how great manure is and how useful it can be. But when it comes to human poo, like people are just like, this is stinky, we need to get rid of it. And a lot of sewage systems don't work well. But Bill Gates has decided to take it upon himself to improve the sewage problem and by that reducing a lot of morbidity and mortality throughout the world. Bill Gates started Microsoft. He's a billionaire in the tech world and has very little to do with healthcare. Why is he so like, 
why is he concerned about something like that? And why have no healthcare professionals, governments maybe dedicated as much time as he has? He has put in more than $20 million into finding a solution to this, and they've come very close. There are some working toilets right now that are self-sustaining, using human pool to um, help them run, working throughout um, South Africa, in Pakistan, many other areas. So again, not that my idea was exactly there, but I kind of had something going. Maybe if I just had something else to ignite my thoughts, maybe I could have also done something. Now I also wanna, there's some people in the audience here that are doing really interesting things. I don't wanna put you on the spot, but for example, um, Fancy, thank you for coming today. You work in a very interesting field, right? Um, so now you're currently studying law, but what else do you do? And what is a very innovative idea that you guys currently use? Oh, well, currently um, we are trying to move into the augmented reality space um, and make use of augmented reality to really capture, I'd say, the interest um, you know, of, of, of people um, into whatever product or whatever service you may be offering. Um, yeah, I'd say that particularly uh, that would be our, our biggest baby. Um, yeah. Hmm, thank you. Has anyone heard of augmented reality? Have people heard of augmented reality being used in healthcare? So already those two, some people have heard it, but not everyone. But through discussions, I think we get a chance to learn about things that we don't normally get a chance to listen, to hear about. So last week I went to a conference and they spoke about augmented reality, but to help surgeons in rural areas. So what they do basically is if you put on these goggles, and you're now operating on a patient, you can have someone in a remote area help you with your surgery, even though they're not there. They could be 50 kilometers, even further away. But I hadn't heard of that before. And I'd say I'm, I'm quite well off. I went to a good university. You heard of it, I don't know how. The main thing is that people need to start speaking more so that these ideas can connect with people and we have the opportunity to grow and think differently. I'll hand over to you. So, the purpose of today's talk is the power of podcasts in healthcare. So, but first let's start at the beginning. What is a podcast? A podcast is derived from the term pod is from iPod and the cast is broadcast. A podcast developed initially in the iPod around 2004 and essentially it's a form of digital media where people could have created or listened to digital media that, that was termed podcasts. It, obviously now it's more available on various platforms, not only on Apple products, but it's obviously become, it's grown and it's actually skyrocketed in the last few years and become more widely available. A podcast can be anything really. You can find podcasts on cooking to as Brian mentioned, okay, he mentioned augmented reality in his conference, but you can, there are podcasts out there on surgery or surgical approaches. So pretty much anything you can find a podcast on. There's so much, and as he was talking about now with regards to 
there's a lot of ideas out there and podcasts provide a medium to listen to various ideas and good ideas out there some are good some are bad but then if you like have um, a medium in which you could search for a good idea if you combine it with your thoughts then solutions can be made for our problems um, a podcast is not just an audio file or audio book it's actually an independent medium it's in its own right similar to television or radio just that the difference between television is quite impersonal and also radio is a little bit more personal but podcasts it's literally you're listening to something that you intentionally decided I want to listen to something that's talking about this so you're a little bit more focused in what you're listening to and most of the time people are listening to podcasts while they're doing other things so there's it's also provides a, a way of like reflecting because you let's say you're driving to work um, actually let me ask Mamta your commute to work, how long is it more or less? About an hour and a half. An hour. <laughs> About an hour to an hour and a half. Anyone else? <laughs> Sorry, you at the back? How long does it take you to get to work? Uh, 45 minutes. 45 minutes. So, Ajita? I need that to come with the car journey. <laughs> <laughs> There's podcasts that literally are two minutes long, so <laughs> you come it either way. So literally, you could find a podcast that suits you. Within, you could listen to three 15-minute minutes <laughs> episodes <laughs> in your right in your commute. But you can find a podcast that's the time limit is suited to your needs, the topic is suited to your needs, and you can literally do it while doing something else. So it's a very powerful medium, but I feel like it's still quite underutilized. Um, but for I will we'll get more into that in a little bit. But yeah, for I. So why did we start 15-minute medicine? The answer is quite simple, and I think that's why a lot of things are started. Money. We thought that if we start a podcast, we'd be able to make enough money over six months to fund a trip overseas. <laughs> You're all laughing because you realize that's highly improbable. But either way, as we started, we realized that it's quite a task to start a podcast. It's not just simply getting out your phone and recording. There's a lot of things that, a lot of steps that need to be taken, especially if you want to make a good product at the end of the day. Along the way, we realized that actually, although money might not come right now, we kind of left that target and now we're trying to, it has become a proper passion project. We're trying to bring, can we say it's a public Creative. good? I would say a public good to as many people as possible, to get conversations going, to allow people to learn when really, and other times they wouldn't really have the opportunity. So like we said, when you're driving, you can listen to a podcast. When you're cooking, you can listen to a podcast. When you're washing dishes, just normal tasks when you don't, when you don't have to necessarily focus on exactly what you're doing, you can listen to a podcast. And what we wanted to do is make a podcast that can be used by mainly healthcare professionals, but anyone else as well to improve healthcare across the world. Yeah, essentially like to create good content because I mean, um, it helps us when we create the content because we're also learning things, we're doing research, we're bettering ourselves, but then also to the benefit of others because there's a lot of information out there and maybe it just takes someone finding it and putting it in a medium where someone else can listen to it in a simpler way that can make uh, distribution of information a lot easier because there's a, you can, there's a lot of information, but if someone comes and sifts it into the key points, that helps a lot of people and that's actually more effective and more efficient. So, I want to ask... Sorry, I forgot. Is it, what's the actual concept of 
And I think I'm glad that you spoke about that because it's literally where we're going to next. I don't know, has anyone read the, um, the book, che uh, The Checklist Manifesto? Um, it's by a doctor called Atul Gawande. So what he speaks about, I think is very closely related to what is done at EM Guidance. So you've already given us an introduction to what EM Guidance stands for and how the app works. So I don't know, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but the two main things that I personally use from EM Guidance is the um, like the medication formulary as well as the protocols. Now speaking specifically about the protocols, why are protocols like useful in our everyday lives? Because you have to agree that a page summary of treating a condition, that can't be everything that there is to it, am I right? What makes a protocol different and more useful in our everyday life is the fact that it's taking the most important points and then from there, you can now fill in the blanks from the education that you have gotten like throughout like your whole <laughs> your university degree or whatever. If we were to put out every single step in painstaking detail, that's great. But for you to manage what you're doing right then and there doesn't help. So with that, if you um, in medicine there's an important step that was taken a few years ago and that was the WHO surgical safety checklist. And Part of what we're talking about here is taking ideas from different spheres and bringing them into one place. So to come up with this WHO surgical safety checklist, what was done was a team was sent to gather information on how to, bring, how to make a protocol. And they actually enlisted not other doctors to help, but they first went to pilots, because pilots are known to have huge protocol booklets on like basically any problem that you can have, so, so much so that when you're busy flying, you might not even notice that there's a problem taking place because the pilot has already sorted it out. And in those protocols, it's just quick steps on how to manage something. And now medicine has taken that and they've used that in the WHO surgical safety checklist. And that has led to over 40% a 40 decrease in morbidity and mortality in surgeries throughout the world. And again, it's by not taking the normal route, but by looking at people that are doing things that you may currently be wanting to do and integrating that into your current practice. And that's with 15-minute medicine as well. So when we make these episodes that are 15 minutes long, we're telling that 15 minutes is going to replace all the education going to all these lectures. No, it can't. But basically what we're saying is that <coughs> we want to give you quick reminders or quick introduction to topics. Because you still need to do the work, go and read your textbook. But what we're going to do is allow you to quickly remember what you've learned by these quick or by these steps that we've done, or the most important steps to treating certain things. Yeah, as for I mentioned, like um, you can't replace a textbook. So even with, for example, with EM guidance, like I used to have a SAM. Actually, I still do, but I don't use it anymore <laughs> because of EM guidance. Well, you'd have to literally page through, page through, looking for like a specific drug class or whatever, contraindications, etc. Whereas a quick reference, you know what you're looking for, you just quickly want to go through the reference. That makes it a lot easier. So in the same way, that's the purpose of an episode. But also more so, we don't want to also focus on like strictly medical topics, but also paramedical topics. So like one of our episodes recently was about doctor's salaries or 
you know, mm -hmm. is it how much is enough? Is it too much, too little? You know, things like that. Um, topical conversation because then we want to broaden the scope into pe people who are not necessarily healthcare professionals and maybe a clinical episode like TTP or appendicitis will not be too relevant to them, but maybe they can still hear, I don't think doctors earn enough because of so, 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 so. Anybody can have that kind of conversation. So that's what we also want to do. Just get ideas out there, start conversations. So we just like to give you a quick um, kind of sample of what we do. Like if also said, there's our, our podcast um, has two branches. So one, which is purely educational, is quick reminders, recaps, introductions to topics. And then the other branch is now just topics surrounding medicine and fields like that, that now just get us thinking about our everyday lives, our practices, and wondering if there's any way to improve it. Because improvements in our lives, whether it's we're more happy, we're doing things more efficiently, it's good for general public, for ourselves, our families, everyone. So, the first example, a one-month-old male walks into a clinic, um, comes, cl comes to the clinic with his mother. His child has been vomiting for the past four days. The child, when the child cries, the tears are dry, the head has a sunken fontanel, so normally babies, you see they have like a, a kind of a hole, it's depressing this child. And yeah, so this has been going on for a very long time. The mother is very worried, and so now she's coming to ask for help. On examination, the child, as Brian mentioned, was noted to be dehydrated, sunken fontanel, dry skin, lack of tears, and a decreased level of consciousness. Clinically, the child was also tachycardic, and it was an assessment of acute diarrhea was made, and the child was started on IV fluids. Going back into the history, it was noted from the mom that the child had been constipated for a couple of days and she had a previous bad experience at the hospital. So instead of consulting a medical professional first, she went to her family members and upon discussion, they decided let's take the child to the traditional healer. And at that point, an enema was given and then the child presented in that uh, state. Clinically, the child was very dehydrated and in the first instance, one would need to rehydrate the child. So fluids, 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 and more fluids. Obviously not over, overloading the child. One would also want to consider antibiotic cover. Our episode would also go into an approach to a child who presents with acute gastroenteritis or diarrhea. So viral causes, bacterial causes of management, drugs, and such as in this case. We'd have a brief overview on pathophysiology. So that's a, an example of what we do clinically. But then on the other side of things, a paramedical topic would be, for example, Dr. Y is a first year intern in a remote rural hospital in the Eastern Cape. She's overworked, there's poor resources in the hospital, and she's been having a very, very tough time because she feels like she's under-supervised and there's a lack of support in the hospital. The same child arrives at the hospital. She's seen many, many, many cases like this before, and she's already overworked and it's 2 a.m. in the morning. She feels like, ah, oh, this is just another one. My colleague notices how tired she is and actually offers to help manage the child and rather give her a chance to go sleep. But she actually notes that she has insomnia and she's been also been struggling with a, a few minor mistakes here and there and struggling to concentrate. So she's like, there's no point in me actually going to sleep. Maybe I'll just read up and go in because I've been making very simple mistakes. Um, 
as she walks away, the colleague notices that she's mumbling about how these cases are so sad and there's not much that can be done about them. So as you said, I'm just going to go into a bit more detail. So self-blame, irritability, insomnia, and so on and so forth. These are just a few of the symptoms that you'd find with compassion fatigue. So compassion fatigue isn't just feeling tired from caring too much. Basically what happens is that there's trauma, you get, it's a result of stress resulting from um, constant um, exposure to stress and also the result of burnout all coming together. This results in the person being unable to completely cope with the day-to-day -day activities and that's why they tend to self-blame. They're constantly tired, fatigued, and so on and so forth. If you speak to many people working in medicine, they're gonna tell you that they probably have compassion fatigue. They might be confusing themselves with having burnout as well, and it's important to make the distinction. Further from that, we also need to realize that it's not just a medical problem. Initially, when it was first described, firefighters, police officers also had the same thing. Years later, it was also seen every day in people that were caring for loved ones at a long, um, for long periods of time. So it's, compassion fatigue is something that can happen to everyone. Now, if someone suffers from compassion fatigue, it's not just a case of asking the person, telling the person to be resilient or go away for two days and come back, because that's not good enough. If you don't treat compassion fatigue, you're gonna have a lot of, there's increased absenteeism with it. Like we said with this intern, a lot of mistakes get made leads to more mortality and morbidity in the hospital. So it's something that really needs to be solved. How do you even solve, <laughs> how do you even solve compassion fatigue? If there's anyone here that can tell me, I'll be, I won't be surprised, but it's not something that's really spoken about. We come, in medicine, I think there's a culture of complaining, but in terms of finding solutions, I don't think we're quite there yet. With, we leave, uh, we leave big decisions to be made by heads of department or really outspoken people. But just in general, we tend to keep suffering until it's too late. When it comes to um, compassion fatigue, what you can do, what's very important is for awareness to be, um, to be had. The person needs to realize what's going on and accept that they're not in a good space. What's very important is also to realize that the situation that you find yourself in and the situation that you find your patients in specifically is unfortunately a part of life. A lot of people come, and I know myself included, we think that we can save everyone, that people mustn't suffer, and that's definitely true, but we need to come to the reality that that's not always possible. It's important to speak to people about it. If um, counseling is needed, then that should be granted. So that's what you can find generally on the internet um, in terms of how to treat compassion fatigue started to think about what other ways we can do that. And I think that's when you need to be more innovative in terms of finding ideas. One thing I thought of is maybe getting people to rotate through different, um, different areas of a, for example, a rotation. So if people are working in family medicine, some people in family, some hospitals in family medicine have people working in the trauma department. So instead of keeping someone in trauma department for two weeks on end, Rather than maybe three days they work in the trauma department, then they can go and work in the clinic, then they three days somewhere else. So just so that your exposure isn't as constant. You can possibly make rotations short term, you can increase 
you can break up rotations. I don't know, I don't have the answers, but it's important to discuss and look for answers and to seek answers from somewhere else. And like, uh, like we've been saying throughout this talk, that's what we're trying to encourage by our podcast. So yeah, basically like what we just discussed now, the clinical case and the paramedical, if that's even a term, mm. <laughs> um, case, is that there's something strictly medical and then there's something that isn't really medical but it's related. And the second thing is actually equally as important because if you have a doctor that has compassion fatigue, making lots of mistakes, that's gonna affect patient outcomes anyways. Even if the doctor does know exactly what to do, let's say they know the, the, the steps exactly of how to manage a child's diarrhea. But if they're making little mistakes or they're tired and they're burnt out, then it's still gonna affect the patient anyways. So those are equally important things that we need to consider. And those are the kind of content that we're trying to create as well. So now I think we can again move to asking the audience for For the most part, it's actually been straight, like, mm. kind of separate. But that's a good idea that you pose there that we can actually consider because most of the time we will just be like, okay, hey, let's talk about this today, or like, hey, let's talk about that. But then now we actually kind of something that we can actually merge together is, is a very good option because then it actually kind of streamlines things a bit. I agree completely and we kind of following suit of what we were complaining about it's important to merge those two worlds I think again um, kind of putting podcasts on a pedestal I don't know why but the kind of conversations that you get in podcasts are different from other forms of media I don't know if it's the type of people that make podcasts or what but personally in terms of issues that I personally have not had exposure to a lot of podcasts have shed light on that. So one thing, I listened to a podcast that spoke about raising a child gender neutral. If you speak to people about raising a child as gender neutral, it's either there's people that get it, there's people that don't get it. And when it comes to topics, especially working in a field like medicine, and I think possibly law, a lot of different um, fields of work, you can't afford to, for the patient's sake, to kind of have a one-track mind you need to be exposed to as many differing opinions as possible. So from just listening to that episode of 
raising a child that's gender neutral, I learned a lot. I'm not going to say I'm an expert, but I think I was able to gain a lot more understanding and empathy. The same thing, I've listened to a TED Talk, which was TED Talk podcast, but they spoke about um, the importance of um, being aware of the LGBTQI community as a healthcare professional, which I'll say our curriculum at, we both studied at UCT, our curriculum was quite wholesome, we learned a lot, but obviously they did not have time to go into as much depth as possible in topics like that, especially if when you come out, people complaining that you don't know enough anatomy, you don't know the basics of whatever. So I think that's, not I think, I definitely that's something that we strive to do to kind of add to the curriculum as much as possible where we can, but also not just coming with our own opinions, but trying to do enough research where we can asking people that are very knowledgeable about the topics as well. Yeah. And I think it's also like an important form of education, so to say, because I mean, in our society as a whole, we do struggle to get people to even read. Um, and with the advent of smartphones becoming more available to and e easily accessible, they're becoming cheaper and they're very cheap smartphones out there that people can use. I think it's also important that we can actually use it to supplement educational programs or even literacy programs, so to say, literacy, which is not actually reading. But then, because maybe if we can't, we're struggling to get people to read about certain topics or ideas, but maybe we can get them to listen, that's a possibility, I think. Because, um, I mean, it's also easier to listen while you're doing something versus like actually trying to sit down and find time to read. Personally, I've been trying to read this one book for like many months now. I get like to a certain point, then life gets a bit hectic, and then like I start again because I'm like, I need to start it from the beginning. Whereas like if maybe I was listening to it, I probably would have finished it driving to work. But that's another thing, yeah. Um, and like it also said, if you look it up, podcast basically started in around late 2003, early tw uh, 2004. But it's not really like actually reinventing the wheel, so to say. Um, I don't know if there's really if there's people that are old enough here. I see a few old people, but I don't want to guess people's <laughs> ages. Um, but I don't know if anyone's heard of a, prog a radio program called um, Hello, um, what's it, Mrs. Teacher? Hello, Mrs. Teacher. No one's heard of it. Okay, thought so. You guys are quite young. <coughs> Basically, my parents told me my parents grew up in rural Zimbabwe, and for them, they didn't have access to. Um, a wide array of teachers, especially private school teachers, they were in a rural area. And they basically learned quite a great deal of their English through a radio program. So we have said that textbooks are essential, we're not trying to replace textbooks, but radio and specifically podcasts can bridge the gap. Currently, um, podcasts are, kind, are quite, they're kind of breaking out of the niche mold, but it's still something that is done by people that are generally more affluent but we need to kind of break down that stereotype because it's a lot of the, when we talk about access, this is something that can provide a lot of access to knowledge, ideas, and that's good for everyone. If we can get people, when you talk about the, the what was it, like 2012, when everyone was complaining that Limpopo didn't have um, textbooks. <laughs> Not to say that this would be a perfect supplement, but can do some things in the meantime. We need to think of being innovative in how we um, find solutions to um, to different problems. Yeah. So I think um, that's 
to sum it all up, um, podcasts are a powerful tool. I think they're underestimated in this day and age, and I think maybe it's important to try and promote them a lot more because I like for I like per personally like for I actually listens to a lot more than you, um, and he got me a lot into podcasts more in, in recent times, and actually seen the the benefit of it because before I was just like uh, I'm just chilling. He's <laughs> like, hey bro, check out this episode, check this out. And then I realized how like actually powerful it can be. And like it's so easy to listen to, like and you can you can always find like there's multiple like genres and like let's say for example, like I have a keen interest in like neurosurgery, for example. There's like multiple podcasts on neurosurgery, but then like you can find the one that you like, you can find the one that you like the way the person speaks, you can find the one where you can actually say, I remember how this person I remember this approach from this person. So you can actually really choose and cater it, or like kind of, what's the word? Um, tailor it, yes, that's the word. <laughs> tailor it to your specific needs and like personality, so to say. And I mean, even like, for example, let's say you're a registrar in like whatever field, medicine, surgery, and like you're in a specific program, it's pretty structured, you've got your tubs, you've got your clinical time, et cetera, et cetera. You've got the recommended textbooks and reading. But then let's say you can listen to a podcast from another country even on certain things. You can you can still gain more knowledge. You can still help your, your training. It doesn't necessarily have to be in that silo. So that's just an example, for, so to say. I think also, um, actually, there are actually um, podcasts there on, um, like, for example, journal articles. Like, let's say your consultant is like, read this article and come back to me tomorrow and we're gonna discuss the management of this condition. Sometimes it can take like 30 minutes or so to get through a very dense article or even longer. But for example, let's say you like really press for time, you've been on call three times this week and you just need to like sleep. You can quickly listen to a podcast of 30 minutes that's on, on the same article, just summarized. That can help quite a bit. So that's just something to think about. So like there's a wide range of potential and possibilities and we, I think we need to tap into that to care better for our patients and for ourselves. And yeah. as well, I think why I encourage doctors to, to listen to podcasts and not specifically medicine related podcasts is because we are very, very boring people and we tend to speak about medicine all the time no matter who we're with. So I encourage you to listen to a wide array of different podcasts, in addition to our podcast, The Three Minute Medicine, um, just so that you can get a wider view of the world and different things that are out there. Because I think it's important to also for, your, for yourself to leave medicine aside and sometimes just talk about different things that can also lead to avoiding compassion fatigue. Now we've got a few poses that we'd like to bring to the audience as well, just to see if we can get a few conversations rolling, because that's the main thing that we said we've been aiming to do the whole time. We'll be quite quick, but let's get everyone as active as possible. So the first one is, and yeah, anyone can answer. The first one is about a journal article I read um, recently, and it was carried out by the um, university, oh, I keep getting this wrong. University of London, the London um, University London of Hyde. Sorry, sorry. School, School of, of Tropical Medicine and um, HIV. Hyde, yeah. That's not yeah. important right now. So they did, a, <laughs> they did um, research. 
and what they aimed to do was to improve the uptake of parents having their children tested for HIV. How they did it, they separated the groups into the, um, the sample into three different groups. So one, they'll just go to the houses and ask the parents if they didn't mind having their children come to the clinic to get tested. The second group, they offered a small um, sum of money, $2 specifically, um, to encourage them to bring their children. And then the second group, uh, the third group, they put them into a raffle where they stood a one in eight chance of winning this money if they took their child to the, to, um, to the hospital. This was done in Zimbabwe. Why I say that is just to give context because $2 they said was the equivalent of getting a taxi to the clinic. So it wasn't more money so that you can go and spoil yourself. It was just enough to remove the barrier of access to healthcare. Now in the audience, do you think that that's okay to give people money? If we focus on the two groups, not the control, the um, $2 or the chance of winning money, is that okay? Like, what do you yeah. think? <laughs> it's this is ethically it's okay. Yeah. It depends on where your research point is. That undoubtedly introduce bias. Your group may be compromised. But you saw many people became radical. You just mentioned also. Not that it's unethical. I mean, they're not necessarily giving them anything extra from You're going to get the data. There's no harm caused to the people. So technically, if you want to go ethics, you, you could probably they got by ethics, which would be fine. We, we know it's fine. So ethically is it okay? Yes, but we're not excused. So it is. It's how are you going to write that up with those differences? But so no, it's not So what they set out to do was to increase the amount of children being tested. Inappropriate protection of the likelihood of the 
So the important thing, so if you look at the four main um, medical, the ethical principles, there's others besides it, but the four main ones are autonomy, non-malefic, so autonomy is just so that you, you basically, you, it's your choice to do something. Non-maleficence, there's no harm done to the patient. Beneficence, um, just they're gaining something, and justice, justice, self-explanatory. So in the discussion, basically what they said, the main ethical problem was that of autonomy. Because dangling, not even dangling, but with the two latter groups, just the fact that you could gain money, while well, you're going to get money, or you could gain money potentially, it forms a sort of coercion. And then that kind of, that's in the, in the parent's mind, that is, they, it gets blinded, so to say. You're not necessarily clearly thinking in terms of Oh, there could be stigma if my if my child gets tested and they're positive, or even just going to the clinic, and all of a sudden it it just changes the dynamics. So that was the main problem. But I agree, even if there is that, I want to say minor ethical problem, why not do it if by us testing more people, finding out how many people are positive, getting people on treatment more um, earlier, improves outcomes altogether. Because how many times? Uh, now I've just rotated in pediatric, but we saw so many patients presenting to the hospital and children undiagnosed now presenting with TB, meningitis, so many other things, which now the medication for that, especially when, once it gets to multi-drug resistant TB, et cetera, is, yeah, it's excessive. So if you're gonna get people tested for the economy in general, I think it's a better thing. But again, we need to have these sort of discussions and sift through whether it's the right thing, whether it's the wrong thing. Mm. Um, when was the study done? It was done, I don't want to lie to you, but I want to say it was done about three years ago. Okay, so like three years ago. So my, I come from a legal background, but my, my take on it is I'm always looking at whether or not the research is a reasonable 
in the business context, again, if you look at the objectives of the actions that you've been taking, they're very noble and there's a public interest benefit there as well. Again, thinking about are they less evasive or less, you want to say, yeah, but, but more, you know, if, if, the, if the issue is a cost thing, then you're saying that all we want to do is just um, neutralize that cost and then pay a few dollars for every family. Um, you know, especially if you had said that this was something done 10 years ago, which my thinking would be different, but, but now, you know, the availability of mobile testing to, to even at any university where, or, or discovery wellness days, you know, the, the, the technology and the facilities are there to have mobile clinics, so immediately you can negate all of that deterrent benefit evasion problem by saying, well, if you want to gain the data, then maybe what you should do is turn your cost into mobile clinics and then making it completely voluntary and then eliminate the early stroke issues. I think it's two dollars once you're at the clinic. Okay. Yeah. Sorry, what's your background? Deep law. Straight law. Well, yeah, I did a BA, but I don't think that makes any difference. Um, <laughs> so no I medical did, background. No, no, no. But my dad, my dad's a doctor, and I've just always just grown up with my friends. Um, grown up in a in a healthcare <laughs> field, and a lot of my friends are on healthcare. But I just myself have taken an interest in healthcare and, and education specifically. So just on a separate note, I think that what you're doing is amazing and it's a huge issue that I when I'm trying to address, I don't have all the answers and also I think that doctors and lawyers specifically have had an ego about their profession for a very long time and kept things and information to their chest and overcharged and misdiagnosed just because of, of very narcissistic behaviours and very ATAP personality so even if they are tired and burnt out they'll still keep going but I think that a lot of issues can be resolved by just creating awareness and education and Before we, because we've been talking for a while, but just before we take any extra questions, I also just one thing that with the kind of strictly educational thing that we tend to focus on is I don't know if you speak to a lot of doctors and you ask them about their regrets, it's like it's quite easy to remember. I don't know why. I don't know if it's only doctors, but in just general, if you ask them about that one patient that they wish hadn't passed away or that one patient that they messed up with. It's a lot easier to recall that as opposed to recalling their successes, unless their successes are like these huge triumphant things. And I think we want to also put a more positive spin on that. And that's why with our episodes, right now we've been trying to move into the direction of, if I come and I ask, for example, Sheila, please tell me about a case, but I want to ask her about a case that specifically where she thinks that there's something that she learned or could have improved on because 
if she made a mistake, the problem, the mistake that she made, she's more than likely, I hope, she's a very diligent person, to go and find out what that mistake was, or someone told her what the mistake was. And for everyone else, that's something that you can definitely learn from. And that's why in the medical profession, they have morbidity and mortality meetings as well, when patients have passed away, so that not necessarily you can pound down on that person and blame them for making for, for this person passing away, but just so that people can learn from your mistake. And you also realize when you're doing this that mistake, the mistakes that people make, even if it's the exact same case, are quite often very different. So our first episode was about acute gastroenteritis, kind of like we presented here, and we spoke about specific things. I spoke to a registrar who just completed her studies about two weeks ago, and I asked her to present something, and she was like, yeah, I'm going to talk about acute gastro. And I was like, no, I really don't want to. We spoke about this like long ago, and it's also a boring topic. But that was the only thing that I was going to get out of her. By the end of it, she pointed out something to me that we completely did not speak about. It was when we, when we compile our episodes, we try to go to like the best resources as po um, possible, go to up-to-date our textbooks and guidance. <laughs> <laughs> and we tried to find exactly uh, how you treat these, um, the patients. And something that she pointed out that we didn't mention in the previous episode was she managed the patient completely fine. The patient was rehydrated, not in shock anymore, was stable. But the mistake that she made was she left the patient and went and cared for other patients. Whereas it's important to keep yes, checking yes. on your patients, reassess, because quite often with these children, they can slip back into shock. And just that different perspective, a different experience, I think we can all learn from, and then hopefully we also won't make the same mistakes moving forward from there. Yeah. Yeah, I think also like another thing, like I was gonna actually talk about M and M's as well. Um, sometimes they do end up just being about like, okay, what happened, or but then like a specific direction about like what can we do better, because I mean not everyone has to make the same mistake, you know, like we don't all have to like make that one mistake to like okay I'll never have I'll don't do this again. We all can just see okay this person made this mistake. Let me learn from this person. Then like another person learns from me like. In the same way, podcasts, one person learns from the other, from the other, from the other, from the other. And I mean, that's how we can improve patient outcomes. Like, for example, another, like, um, maybe it's time for one more, like, poser or, like, something to get people thinking about. With regards to, like, improving healthcare or in attracting more funding towards healthcare, which there already is quite a lot of, but in terms of private companies incentivizing, there's always this um, social responsibility that companies now, like in, th in this day and age, like to um, um, partake in. So to say, um, they um, invest a lot of time and personnel in social responsibility programs. But then at the end of the day, do you think of it as this is actually them being altruistic? Or is it on the other hand, if you think about it, and people do do these kind of studies, and they actually do like a lot of research into how this has affected their brand. If your brand is associated as the socially responsible brand that um, does well, that feeds hungry children, more people would like to be associated with it or to know more about this brand, possibly buy their products, etc., etc., etc. And then it can becomes a thing of like, are they being socially responsible because they're socially responsible, 
or are they genuine because at the end of the day it still kind of um, gives them a bit of profit mm-hmm. margin so to say um, I don't know what do people think um, about that or yeah <laughs> <laughs> have people heard of like the, the Hawthorne effect so basically like when you're doing a study that now that you're in the study you act differently to mm-hmm. how you would act in general so, um, if anyone has a chance, I'm promoting so many people still. Um, <laughs> you should have um, a look at a YouTube video on the guys that do Freakonomics with Stephen Dubner mm-hmm. and Stephen Levitt. And one of the studies that they dug up looked at people's altruistic behaviors. And people were given $10, and then they were given options. I might be screwing this slightly, but for principles sake. So you have $10, and now you're given a choice to give all of your money to another person, to keep all of the money, well, $3, and then the rest can give away, or to give away nothing and keep your 10. Economists tended to keep all the money, then depending on your different degree background, like in general, most people decided to keep about half or $3. But then as they changed the study, the results started to change a bit. So then, um, so initially, like I said, it was you could ch- keep ten dollars, you can keep three dollars, or you keep ev- <laughs> or you keep nothing, mm-hmm. but you're not giving away necessarily. Then they changed it and added the option of you now giving away three dollars. Still with me? Mm-hmm. And now the results changed where before the majority of the group kept in that three dollar margin, now it moved to zero. Now people were not necessarily giving away, but they weren't keeping either. Then they added another group where now you could give away all of your money, give away some of your money, and so on and so forth. What they found is that people tended to still keep, they were not more altruistic, they kept more money for themselves. And that begs the question, is it, was were these um, results skewed because of the, because they were being studied? Or that just how people generally tend to act? Because as soon as you take away someone sitting there with a piece of paper and marking you, then behaviors tend to change. Mm. And then that's what we're saying about, maybe that's an approach to getting people to fund more research, more projects that people are involved in, because people are always complaining, oh, we would do this if we had more money. There's people sitting there out there with a lot of money. So how do we kind of manipulate them (laughs) to get them more involved in improving public good for everyone? Yeah. So basically that concludes what we came to speak about. We, just to sum up, what we are trying to do is basically make medicine as boring as possible by improving things incrementally so that people just sit around when they're at the hospital not doing anything, just ticking checklists and doing things that have no risk eventually. So that's the goal for 50 years. (laughs) Does anyone have any questions? I have a question for you guys. Little <coughs> things to be thinking of as we conclude. Yeah. Um, has there been any push to use technology more often? Like I look at my guys from fourth year downloading my guys. I mean, that's what I do with my interns. As soon as they start going in, I'm ready my guys. One of the environments is ready to take two weeks out to look. Where's your organizing approach? Like, are they doing it at the varsity and saying from fourth year, listen, where's Armando? Why don't you watch this? Yeah, yeah. Armando, so because no one told us that when we yeah. were at varsity, okay? So 
I think that it's got to be those things after, you know, very close to radar, you discover yeah. a lot of things. And post that they push a lot more for technology, using yeah. podcasts, and they all for that. But no one does it at undergrad. No one tells you go to YouTube. Instead of going through anatomy textbooks, go and watch a manga stuff and you'll pass way better than you would by going through a book. <laughs> so are they actually pushing more for that? And I mean, it is a nice thing. You see this, you know, just yeah. a lot of like the Apple and Playstation, those things are very small ways of giving to people. So are they doing that? Are they pushing it more? Because I know when I was there, there was nothing. They did not push yeah. anything. And then you were like, when I was in Pioneer, why the hell did you know about that? Mm. I think um, in more recent times, a little bit, but then personally, and I think Farai can also speak and Shiva as well, but like, it was more of a, like we discovered yeah. it ourselves in med school and then we tell our friends, hey, go <coughs> do this, go check out this guy because there's a, well, Dr. Najib, mm. uh, <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Najib saved us a <laughs> lot of neuro. <laughs> 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 but like, like, have you guys thought about going back? For going to varsity, or even in bed, I don't know if you are at the varsity, but going there and doing your presentation in front of the house, <laughs> do that, you know, mm. follow that, or make. I mean, I, I think I saw your stuff with the pen out on the street, because um, I did it in the podcast, and I think your first one was actually around the world. Yeah. Maybe two seasons back. Last, last year. Yeah, 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 So those, I don't even know how I came upon it, but I mean. If you have more regular podcasts, which mm. is a regular thing, then I think go do something good. Go to the varsity and tell them that those are the people that are going to be using it. Um, and then it's just touching on different things that grown up things can touch and see. I think it changes with us being the young guys because that hierarchy needs to fall away. Mm. You know, with those people, I am one of those people that has to do 36 hour tours, watching shows again and internships was not fun at that point in time. Um, but there's no way the interns go home at 10 now for the latest. That's the rule in the Western Cape. You will not be a pastor mm. at 10. And I fully support that. I'm not one of those people that agree. No, I work hard, therefore you need to work hard. Hey, go home, go sleep. Do something else. Do something outside of medicine. But we are the ones that need to push that. You know, and that falls away. When people feel comfortable, like you're saying, go take them out of departments, you know, you do three of this, three of this. <coughs> if they enjoy departments, like, I mean, I've worked in casualty post-clinical research for four or five years, just as an EP. And it's fine when the environment's fine. Mm. I mean, you guys have been to Victoria, that's, it's going to be a bigger casualty pool, but it's tiny. And, but it was fine working there. You didn't feel that burnt out. There's four night shifts in a row, you feel burnt out. But because of the environment you want to it didn't feel that bad. Mm. The consultants were there, the support that you had. You worked in hell of a hard, but it's okay. Whereas I think certain other places you work at, that falls away. And you feel that strain of, I've had the privilege or not privilege of working in a lot of provinces. And it's very different. The Western Cape, I always tell the interns, go out. If you have a chance, you can do some shows somewhere else, go and leave the Western Cape. Because it is not the same. Yeah. Like I've been to Bloom, I've been to Northern Cape. Even going just slightly out of the Western Cape, like Caledon, Paul. Paul first of all gonna tell them about black and they're like, Yeah, I feel under rude awakening about us. So UC doesn't go there. But if you were watching that UC there, it'd be crazy. Michael in, where you 
between computation and speech and the machine language. Like, if people are very close to that, mm. especially with the kids, can it end the effect of the influence of the, the, the students learn the math because they learn the students because once they've sung their influence, and the only way they're going to stop that is everyone works together and really explicitly are really helping each other and it carries over to internship. If, you, if people don't work together, they're going to suffer. And, and that's what I don't realize. Like you're saying, the fake A, the enemy, the best, the enemy, the best. And uh, why do you think next to the marketing activity? And that's, that's what people begin to do. So you need to change that in your group as interns. I struggle to change to get 12 interns to work together, now the interns. But I've never been, I love medicine, but that was never, I never made that my life. My sports never stopped, my whatever, other activities never stopped. So that's, I think, falls away. And you guys as interns need to change that in your group and sort of sort that out amongst yourselves. You need to help each other. There's no saying one person goes on early. And that's something that they start to change. You guys don't help each other. Three people will leave at 12, and three people will leave at six. Why must everyone leave at three? You know, so that's for you guys to sort out. I can at least force my interns to do that now, so that's fine. I can install that for myself. But with you, what you know, I'm scared about you. Um, <laughs> so you need to, you guys need to change that yourself. I would say, and tying back to the dads, you're saying have that idea for everyone's got an idea for the ebook, the next industry, but the the speech app. Um, and just what your life vision is about whether, you know, teachers need to do this, they need to have more money, they could do this, and how do we divert the funds from those who have money to, to those who say that they, they would change the world? And I think it's, you know, using yourselves as an example, the people that have so many access to change the burden that they've brought about the, the funds. There's so many ways to make a difference. Um, I think that as an, as an example, we have lots of other startups there who are doing it because they're passionate about making a change and, you know, the, the hopefully the money will come and, and we'll be able to commercialize what we what we are doing. But everybody's had an idea for everything. So there's a there's a reason why your friend or colleague or whoever he was um, didn't act on his, his vision and somebody now is running a very successful app because of it. So I think yeah, I mean you guys even thought it started as with trying to fund a trip from six months. Um, but you're still here and you're still doing it. So with regards to the second one, I think that's an amazing idea. I definitely have not had that thought before, clearly. <laughs> I think that's actually quite excellent. Um, in terms of would it, yeah, I think the way that technology is moving, just the improvements every day, I think I was about to say not in my lifetime, but literally in 
three years, that could be something that's possible. Because like your foster said, in terms of um, just with technology, the amount of with smartphones, with proliferation, yes, <laughs> has been so rapid recently. At this conference I went to last week, they kind of, it wasn't, no, they didn't even make it a joke, it was just reality that they were speaking about how if you look in a lot of areas in, in Africa, that you know how in Europe, North America, they went through the different stages of school for um, communication. There's first horses, whatever, moving on, then telephone lines, going through the big phones, then smartphones. Africa had to, well, ended up skipping some of those steps and like left the telephone lines and straight to smartphones just because the technology was available. It was seen like as an easier thing. And I think right now, smartphones are still quite expensive, but it's getting to a point where they are a lot cheaper than before. And when they can become a lot cheaper, then it's definitely a possibility. The other prob the problem that might mitigate that right now is that in South Africa, I don't know exactly where we rank in the world, but we are still, DOT is still quite expensive by DOT. Whereas in other places, specifically India, where DOT is extremely cheap, if DOT can be cheap to get smartphone technology becomes really cheap, then that's definitely a good idea for people to, yeah, to, uh, as a prescription itself. The first question, you said, have we personally come across any podcast that has directly spoken about the patient? I feel like I've browsed through them, but I personally have not listened to them because it wasn't like for me, it wasn't of interest. But there's a lot of, in America, there's a lot of people specifically looking at vegan diets, keto diets, like you'll find like vegan MD, keto MD, the diabetic doctor or whatever, and those are directly relate, um, directly for patients. But again, the people that are accessing them aren't necessarily the patients that we want to, um, that we have a chance to see in our clinic. And I think with something like this, um, the biggest issue may be in terms of implementation may be that certain people may be just used to be doing something for a certain way for such a long period of time. The introduction of change may be like may bring resistance. So I think it might be earlier to, might be better to rather target like newer groups. So like let's say the newly diagnosed diabetic versus like the one who's been coming to the clinic for years. That may be a bit more difficult to convince them, especially if they're poorly controlled. This is the one who's just been diagnosed and the, maybe the younger patient who's more a little bit more open to the use of technology in everyday life. Um, I think also something along those lines, because now I've been trying to like just speak to people more about what they do, especially when they're not doing medicine. I had a friend who did a thesis on um, on eating habits in rural areas, specifically is looking in the Western Cape in Kailicha. And what they found out was that people use eating or their eating habit, it's, as a, it's a form of entertainment. So even though they might come to the clinic and you might not even need a podcast because if you ask them, what are you supposed to be eating? How much are you supposed to exercise every day? They'll probably know it. But in terms of the behavior change, it's hard to just start and say, no, this is what you must do. And it's like, because for you and me, there's many forms of entertainment out there. So I could go watch Netflix. If you're in the Western Cape, you can go 
walk on the promenade, you can go exercise, so many things, just by virtue of how much money you, are, you have or your environment around you. But if you're now living in a township or any area that is quite desolate, you're going to find entertainment in different forms. And one of them from the thesis suggested that um, that eating unhealthy food might be because, you know, you get the release of dopamine, etc. Mm. I'm not going to go into that detail. That is something that she did as her thesis. I'm not going to go and I'm preaching to you, but I'm not going to go and preach this all over the world. I'm not going to go to the UN and tell them this is what we need to be focusing on like right now. Even though I think it could possibly be. And me having the conversation, maybe if I find people that are more like-minded or are really serious about treating this, then we can put more research in place and possibly get to a point where now we are finding the problems, um, the reasons why we have these problems all the time. So we answered your question, but just an added thing, just about having conversations. Because she did a BA degree in psychology or something. That's very useful for medicine, but we think that the only way we're going to find answers is from the our professors and people that are in the same field that we work in. You know, there's so many potential answers and solutions out there that are just waiting to be um, found out. I want to see the comments on that. I think a lot of that depends on how much sort of we as healthcare practitioners are willing to let go. Um, is the doctor willing to give up? I mean, like I was saying earlier, time and space won't get rid of your patient. Will the private guy give away that follow-up session and say, don't listen to this podcast? So now you've got the resistance on both sides because you have the doctor releasing his power and then you've got a patient from the other side saying, but I'm paying to come and see you. You give me the information and you treat me. Why am I coming to you? You know, so there's that, that that's a big thing that we need to shift. I think it would be fantastic if we can get some and sort of try this podcast. But I think there's two, both of those things need to overcome first. And I think the more difficult part will be actually coming from the doctor side. Maybe the golden, maybe the golden is we could have the, you know, a, a practitioner in a different platform that allows them to record you know, themselves. Mm. So why don't we podcast a particular cognitionist and then give him a piece of himself to the patient? these doctors have built a bank of their own um, guidance mm. and little snippets and that could be could, could be quite interesting as well because you've got to these are decisions that you could be quickly saying um, I, have, I have five minutes with a patient healthy mm. technology wise I can do ping my consultation you know I can just ping my mm. patient to the patient and, you know maybe the same thing the same thing is you don't have to give up ownership and you could yeah. really be if you uh, if you could do it yourself so then that also leads into what the last Ian Braden talked was about with yeah. RV yeah. and the use of technology. How does it integrate? Of what are the laws surrounding that? So again, a conversation. I don't. I'm not even going to lie. I think I've used the information I got from that last talk about five times. Yeah. Whereas, if people don't come to the talk, they're not going to get that information. Yeah. So then, that just means that everyone else is disadvantaged. But you can't expect everyone to drive here all the time or go to Cape Town and hear this famous professor. Like, yeah. you need the conversation to be flowing <coughs> through some sort of medium, and that's, it yeah, doesn't have to be podcast, but I think it's a good one. I, I always think that the, the show is only from my side, not Sarah's. And I, if I, I think that we have to make a clear stand that um, um, podcasts are, are probably a, a substantial commercialized medium. Mm -hmm. um, 
we are uh, in a house system um, in our society that is uh, uh, actually is a stable structure and I, I don't want to be so accusatory of it all, but, but clearly from a, um, a housekeeping or police perspective we are substantially suboptimal um, and we need to use whatever tools at our disposal to improve the, the status quo. Um, what's clearly sort of happening here um, is that we started to ideate at our house etc quite a typical form of media um, look at it in a local context film it down post it and mix it with, 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 with new ideas and suddenly we, we see these Iranian responses uh, like you guys have been doing you know you, you're merging with you know the clinical with the with the with the real world and and we come up with something that's unique and then it suddenly takes real shape um, and, and then just just completely uh, realizes the potential of that media and what happens is, I mean, that, that's a thing in technology, right? Like, you know, you, you, you have a particular coding language or uh, a, a new type of uh, uh, hardware, um, but it takes people to figure out how it's going to be used in any given context. So what I would encourage you guys to do is just, like, to really continue that. Like, continue merging and mixing the things and con continue trying. And you'll come up with, with, with some method of, um, if not already, you know, but enhance the method of using podcasts to, uh, to really realize the true potential and, and what's going to happen afterwards. Um, and I think you, like you said, you, you keep that as your, your driving thing. I, I, and the same, we, we always talk very practically and transparently about sustainability. I, I think that, you know, with these kind of things, all forms of media and technology, there are, you know, standard business models that you do with them, that you will eventually, um, I, I think to your point of sort of manipulating, um, you know, non-profit funders, I think more, more than a strong views on that. With respect to the fact that uh, it's probably harder to do that than it is to find like a genuine business model. Mm. You know what I mean? It's probably harder to try and get some good corporate to, to fund yeah. you, you know, with some sort of way than actually putting a building something that's really valuable mm. for healthcare professionals for all patients that they see as valuable, and then and then finding a way to monetize that. Um, you know, in a, in a way that still drives drives change. So that's what my observation is. I really commend you guys for. Really hard that we can get going, do something, you know, produce a, a, a technology, a product, get it out there, uh, and just keep it going. Um, and I think that you're, you're right, like you guys are, uh, it's something that could be that, that we probably as healthcare community still need to realize the value of. So I, I look forward to seeing that um, as you go forward. Subscribe to the podcast, follow them on social media, and just <laughs> spread the word. <laughs> and um, just a side note that we do have these meetups every month, so we will be having another meetup next month towards the last week. Um, so if everyone could come to that too, and just invite your friends and family, share this time along. And um, we're always looking for someone to also share their ideas around healthcare and to create these type of discussions. So if you feel like you want to share something interesting or something that you're contributing to healthcare and you want to be a speaker at our meetup, <laughs> please come to me and we can organize that or if not, just come to the next one. <coughs>